Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Maya Summer. Maya Summer is a social entrepreneur. He is the executive director and founder of The Bike Union, a non-profit bike shop and coffee house that provides workforce development for young adults who have aged out of the foster care system. Summer also co-founded Bump, an activity-based mentoring program that pairs mountain bikes with youth from the emergency shelter at Child Saving Institute and Girls Inc. of Omaha. Summer is a mentor with the Bike Union, as well as being a frequent mentor with Defy Ventures, a prison-based entrepreneurship program. Listeners will recall my conversation recently with Jeremy Bowman, the executive director of Defy Ventures Nebraska. Summer himself took a non-traditional path to where he is today. He grew up in South Omaha and in his formative years was mentored by books and music. He lives in Omaha with his wife, Katie, and has two sons, Henry and Charlie. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So let's start by just me asking you, what is the Bike Union? The Bike Union is a social enterprise, um, bike shop, coffee shop, and, and social enterprises are organizations that use business strategies to address a social issue. So in our case with the Bike Union, we are focusing on young adults who have aged out of the foster care system. So, I, I, you know, the stats are around 300 every year in the state of Nebraska age out of foster care. So it, that's 19. And when you exit the system, that means all the people, all the caseworkers who were who were concerned about your placement and your well-being and you getting this and getting that, that sort of goes away for the most part. And as a result, you have some, some pretty grim statistics associated with that. Um, I think one of the bigger ones and why we do what we do is that there is a around 50% unemployment rate for young adults who've aged out of foster care. So if you think of it, the national average unemployment rate is like 4%, something like that. And so 52% is, is pretty staggering. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a high rate of teen pregnancy, high rate of incarceration, homelessness, drug use, um, and all of these things that just kind of happen while we live and breathe. And it's an, it's an underserved, overlooked population. And I've, I definitely want to shed some light on that situation. So if a listener was to attend at the bike union, what experience would they have? What would they encounter? Well, I mean, so we run it. I mean, it's, it's a bike shop, coffee shop. So it is just straight retail. So when you come in, ideally you, we want you to have that bike shop, coffee shop experience, but that, uh, therein you know lies the need of the program that sometimes it's not like that so you know maybe sometimes i might be there because we had a we had a couple of kids call in sick or show up late and so then you might get a, a more normal retail experience but you know there are times when you come in you might have a new employee who's not quite versed on interpersonal communication yet and um you know your experience might be not what it is at Starbucks, we'll say, or if you go to, you know, Archetype or Aromas or all these other fantastic local coffee shops we have, it might not be exactly the same, but I guess you could take solace in the fact that 100% of what you're paying goes towards getting that person to that point, you know, goes, goes right back to programming and goes really back into the community. 
What is the origination of the concept that underpins the bike union? The concept's been done many places, so there's nothing truly innovative that I'm doing at all. Um, there's there's one called Pedal Revolution in San Francisco that's been around since 1998, and it's a it's a bike shop that serves local homeless youth and and does effectively the same thing. Um, there's Dream Bikes in Madison and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and that's they work with the general term is at risk youth. I think. Um, and there's conversely, there's a coffee shop too that does the exact same thing in Philadelphia called the Monkey and the Elephant, and they serve youth who've aged out of foster care. And so the concept has been around. You know, the bike shop, coffee shop together is done in multiple places, even in Omaha, um, but done everywhere. So there's really nothing. I mean, sometimes we get innovative pinned on us, which I think is funny because I, I think anyone who knows me knows probably I lean more towards Luddite than innovative, but, <laughs> you know, I'll take it, I guess. Given the nature of the infrastructure in the Midwest, I have to ask why a bike shop and not, say, an auto repair shop, given that we're essentially a very car-based culture? Yeah, and I think that you're, I mean, you really just hit on the limited scope of my abilities, I guess. <laughs> I, I spent 10 years in the bike industry and that's why it's bikes. And the coffee shop really was, we got a great location where it's like, well, this should be a coffee shop too. And so that kind of just came in as an afterthought. But, you know, it really turns out that with biking in, a, in our mentoring program and, and working on bikes, you, in order to either work on somebody's bike or sell them a bike, your interpersonal communication has to be there. And so I think it it is kind of serendipitous that we ended up with these businesses because if we had something where they're behind the scenes and they don't interact with the public, then I think there's a crucial part of the programming that's missing. Um, interpersonal communication and that general small talk, for some of them it comes naturally just because they're naturally – communicative people. And for some of them, it comes naturally because they're natural born hustlers and they're really good at reading people and surviving. And for some of the employees we have, they're just not good at talking to people. And it is, it's, I'm happy that that ended up being a byproduct of it. And one that didn't really plan on, but just fell into our laps. Could you maybe just paint a picture of the child welfare system in in the region um i i think if i think i could speak a little more knowledgeably on on the foster care system but not the child welfare system at large but i think even the the foster care system is difficult but you know what we have is is the the cycle keeps it just keeps refreshing itself right so so you know one of the statistics was early teen pregnancy with the people who age out of foster care and those people most of them any any straight female employees we have have been pregnant or have had kids and too often they don't have the parenting skills because it was never modeled for them, not because they're insufficient human beings, but because they were never shown the right way to do it. And so a lot of the times you have those kids go into foster care too, and the cycle just kind of repeats itself. And so on the foster care system side, I mean, we have people whose job it is to place people into homes and, or emergency placement into homes and 
I mean, these people are overwhelmed and they're overworked and there are not enough foster homes out there. And sometimes there are people who are in taking in foster kids who are not doing it for the right reasons. And then we end up just kind of perpetuating the problem that way too. And so you'll, and then you'll have kids who, who move around quite a bit. I, I have kids who were in, I think she said she was in over 30 foster homes. Um, a lot of which were abusive. Um, you have people who they go into foster homes where they're told they're not to interact with the biological family, that they're kept in a basement. And then, you know, where it kind of ca- catches us up is once they turn 19, that's when the foster families do, n- they don't get any checks anymore to take care of these kids. And so that's when I've, I have kids who they said the day they turn 19, the people, the foster homes they were in said, okay, now let's get your stuff and go. And then where they go is not really of big concern for people. A recent press release by Nebraska State Senators Howard and Bowles says that the most recent report of the Nebraska Inspector General of Child Welfare cites nine reports of death or serious injury to a child in the custody of our state's foster care system. And it goes on to note some other uh, inadequacies of the system. And I do want to ask from your perspective, and I understand that to some degree, we're not painting you as an expert here. We're not expecting that, but you have a perspective because Mm -hmm. you've encountered the system. What are some of the successes, the failures in the inadequacies and and maybe the opportunities for the foster care system? I I think if you want to look at the you know, you can you can put the positive spin on it and, and and let's call the challenges the opportunities. And I think where we can really make the system better is I think to shed a little more light on one, the complete dearth of good foster families, and two, what happens to the people who were not really prepared to age out. And I think if we can get people to to stay focused on that, because it's it's hard for people to stay focused on on this, and and we definitely rack our brains of how do we get people to care about people, you know, getting older, you know. So it's, it's around age twelve, I think, that it becomes really statistically hard for you to be adopted, and then it looks like you're probably going to stay in that system. So I think. As a state, if we're looking at the system, we should start really saying, okay, if if somebody hits this age, and you know, I'm, it, this could be done. All, you know, I'm sure it's done already, but I think we need a greater emphasis on it. Is let's start preparing them for the things that they're going to face and the things that we are going to expect them to do. Because if you think about it, um, in this uh, book about aging out of foster care by Gary Strangler from um, uh, Annie Casey Foundation. You know, they, they had a survey of when they just talked to middle class people and just said, like, when do you think your kids are ready to live on their own? And basically the the age they arrived at was 26. You know, that's when they think, OK, this is when my they can really stand on their own. And so these are, you can assume, reasonably well-adjusted kids who had, you know, a level playing field. And 26 is, is the age that they came to. So and then if you think, OK, so we have kids who've experienced extreme trauma. You know, being taken away from their homes, you know, too often they've experienced violence and neglect and all, you know, the whole cornucopia of of things that cause trauma. And we expect them to be adults at age 19 when they age out. And then I think as a society, we kind of blame them for not really just taking off and flying. And I think, you know, there's the opportunity in the system right there is to say, 
okay, this is what happens if we don't do this. But if you talk to anybody who's working in the system, they understand this. They understand this very clearly. And I think it's just uh, they're trying – they're doing the best they can, I think. But uh, is, is, is that if we don't look at it seriously as a society, then it's something that is just going to keep happening. It's not a sexy cause either. You know, I mean, we – at the bike union, you know, we try to, you know, how, how do we get people to care about this? How do we get people to care about youth who are aging out of the foster care system and, and, and look at these statistics and, you know, they're, they're super grim, but it's just not a sexy cause. These are not, they're not visible scars. You know, if we had, you know, you, I see um, things floating around social media of, you know, they have, um, you know, maybe like a car wash with people who, who are on the autism spectrum. Or coffee shops with people with developmental disabilities, like particularly Down syndrome. Or if you take somebody like, you know, something like a wounded veteran, you know, like these things, a physically wounded veteran. But if you look at the, the trauma, that's the trauma that these people have experienced. Those are invisible scars. And it's it's hard to see those things. Also, we as a society just don't like people ages 16 to 24. <laughs> you know, I think that's just kind of what happens. We um We'd rather not deal with people going through that part of their lives. Again, it's just, it's not a sexy cause, and we're trying to shed some light on that. find that really ironic. I would imagine that if you ask most Nebraskans, they would assert that this is a culture that is very child-friendly, very child-focused. And that, I think, is belied by the grim statistics that you've mm-hmm. mentioned, mm-hmm. that actually it's a hypocrisy. We aren't prepared to invest our political and financial will into damaged people or those that we perceive of Mm -hmm. as damaged and needy. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that incapacity of our local community to address that hypocrisy in some ways is going to keep holding us back to make some of the changes that I think you're suggesting are needed. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, I think think you hit on to the right topic there and and the the drum that I I beat is – I mean, I think we do this whole human services human services thing wrong sometimes. You know, if if it's if it, if people are going, I, I think it's more just like it. It has to be the poster child. You know, it, it, there's there's a certain thing that people are looking for. Um, you know, even you know, I one of the times that I was in prison, I I talked to six or seven inmates that night. The EITs, they're entrepreneurs in training. And I think if if my count was correct, five out of the six I talked to were veterans. And I mean, I think when we say, you know, we want to go help 
we want to help people who served our country. And, and definitely you talked to Nebraskans and it's a cause definitely worth it. I think we need to look at the reasons why we really truly need to do that. And it's trauma and what trauma does to people. So if you, you know, if you've served in, in the armed forces, you've experienced trauma and that needs to be addressed. And we need to figure out the reasons why we're doing that. If you've grown up in the foster care system, then you've experienced trauma. You know, so we, we definitely have tried to focus on people's ACEs score. So it's adverse childhood experiences. And so there's a test you can take of 10 questions. And if you answer yes to a question, that's, that's basically a point. And if you answer yes to four or more, then four or more adverse childhood experiences, then you have this really heightened chance of depression and suicide and drug use and early death. And so if you're talking, you know, an ACEs score of four, then, then you could be in for a pretty tough life and it's going to be tough to navigate society. It's the same thing. If you've served in combat and you've experienced the things that some of these men have experienced and women, um, then then you are, when you get back into society, that's going to be a tough transition. And, you know, we want to, we want to, um, there's a certain type of person we want to revere and it's the brave soldier part of it, but there, there is a true, you know, and it is the upstanding citizen part of it of the former foster kids. People like redemption stories, but we all have to take part in that redemption. I think we have to play our part and, you know, there's, there's a debt we owe to those people. Of course, part of the problem is if if we're dealing with the perhaps critical juncture being between ages 12 and then aging out at 19, mm-hmm. that's a seven-year span. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what age group your employees are, your mm-hmm. mentees are at the mm-hmm. bike union. Um, and if you feel perhaps if to some degree you're getting – you're getting to work with them and equip them with some of the skills they need to mature more rapidly into some of the life skills they need. If you're getting there too late, or if you have ways to reach further down into uh, into their childhood to capture them then. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're talking psychologically, you know, we, we most likely at the time we're hitting them, I think we're probably late for a lot of developmental milestones. Um, but I think when you talk about going through those formative years, because the key to like when we are are getting them is they are just now released from a system. And I think there's something in their, in their thought process, in their psyche that, that feels a little clean slate to them. And then um, that can be good and bad in our case, because once, you know, the last thing they want to be a part of most of the time is another program is another part of the system. And I think they could, you know, they could easily view us as that. But, you know, for many of them, I think they truly do feel lost or, you know, maybe not necessarily lost for all of them, but they do need people to advise them on things. I mean, everybody, I mean, I, in at that time of my life, I needed people to advise me and um, you find that where you can, I guess. And so it's, uh, it's funny at that time in my life, I needed people to advise me so that I could ignore them, yeah. <laughs> make the mistake right. and then come back and realize how right they were. Oh yeah. There's, there's plenty of that going on at the bike union. <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of, you know, here's what we think you should do and it, it will be mold over and disregarded and, um, mold over if we're lucky. Um, 
but uh and I think that's the that's where the length of the program comes in. You know, it's a year long program. They're with us twenty hours a week for a year. And I think that's you you just gotta keep hitting at it. And this is not something that's going to happen overnight. And it's it might not be something that happens after twenty hours a week for a year. But I think it's important that that they get the time put into them. They get they maybe for the first time in their lives they get people investing in them. Without divulging any identities as such, could you share some stories and the journeys of some of the employees, the mentees that you're talking about that have gone through or are in your program? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we had one kind of, this really ties into to what we were just talking about. Uh, we had one employee and she now she kind of just, she'd been, everybody knows her in the system. If you're in human services, you know, this girl, she's just such a big personality. And, um, you know, maybe you don't know her for the most positive reasons either, but she is, I mean, she was as this huge personality force 10 hurricane and it was, it was good and bad. Um, but she really connected with the program because it was investing in her. And I, I think that's really truly what she needed and, and desired. Um, when she came on with us, she was just in her first semester of college. She was carrying an F in, in the one class she was taking. And um, after three weeks of being with us, that F was a C. And so she finished that class. And then her next semester, she finished with an A. This is the first A she got since middle school. It was, you know, and she was so pumped and it was great. And, and we were happy. And, and I think... It was when she was being interviewed by the World Herald because she ended up being on the front page of the World Herald. And they asked her, you know, how did you get this A? And she said, because someone told me I could. And I think that's the, uh, I think that spells out the bike union right there. It was, It's support. And it's not, you know, we tell them we're the gunpowder, but you guys are the spark. Like we don't, we don't do things for people. It, it's completely bootstrapped in the sense of, they have to do the work. They have to put the time into it. And what we will do is be patient, most of the time patient, supporters of of them, of investing in them as individuals. And some of them are like that. Some of them are great stories. You know, um, our most recent graduate in in the year that he was there, he he got his driver's license, which is huge for for most of them, they see us getting them their driver's license as the biggest thing we had accomplished for them, which is funny because we view it differently. But he got his driver's license. He got his first car. He stopped smoking. He stopped doing LSD. So I guess that's, you know, that's that was a huge one in ours. It's not, not really a part of the program to stop people from doing LSD, but it, it was a good byproduct. So he stopped smoking. He stopped doing LSD. He started meditating. He started going to the gym. He got his GED at the very end, and then he started college. And then he has a full-time job at another coffee shop now. And so that, I mean, at month six, I was ready to fire him, you know, just like, come on, you know, you really, it doesn't seem like you want to do this. And it just, it just rattled around in there. And then finally it just, it took hold. He's still doing well. You talked about this cycle each year. And if the system itself doesn't change in some of the ways to address some of the uh, challenges and opportunities that we talked about earlier, how do you maintain a sense of hope that what you're doing isn't just a perpetual treatment of the symptom, 
and is going to make some long-term mm-hmm. uh, shift. So how do you keep hope alive for yourself? That's a really good question and one that we really struggle with in the beginning because, you know, everything that all these observations you're making are very astute in the sense that it's not, this is not some made for TV thing that they're going to come into the bike union and, you know, the, the last graduate is very atypical. Many will quit because they're pushed hard and many or not many, a few will be let go and it is a, it's just not going to happen in some fairy tale like manner. So at first it was very, it was hard to stay positive because you're not getting the results that you think you should get. But I think that's just a naivete we went into it with. And I think we, we understand that much better now in the sense that I can't concentrate on the successes because if I come in and I spent or we spent, I have a fantastic program manager. I have a fantastic store manager. So Curtis and Andrew are the people on the ground. I'm, I'm a very involved executive director in the day to day. So I'm not just out glad handing. Um, so we came into it thinking we were going to get these results. They're going to be so grateful that we're doing this for them, that it's just going to be great. And then there might be some birds chirping, who knows? Um, and it just didn't, obviously it didn't work that way because this is real life and this is this is what it's like on the ground and it was very it was a tough first year really and then we had some we had some very fiery people who who they would mutiny on a regular basis and it was just it was a really eye-opening experience it was a real baptism by fire and i felt like we were going into it saying how am i going to tell this such and such of this foundation and so and so from this foundation, what we're doing with their money and how we're doing what we say we're going to do. And then after a while, we just realized that we can't focus on the outcomes. We can't focus on the success because success blinds you to the process. If you only focus on the success, it blinds you to the process that you're doing and you don't see the person there in front of you. And, and also you know, these kids are so, I call them kids. They're 19, they're kids to me. And they, you know, they, they don't fight back against that. So, um, but they are so adept at reading people and knowing the situation they've had to survive. This is, this is their survival mechanism. And, you know, they could get away with murder in that first year. And they, you know, they knew what was going to happen. And I had one just, she's, she's so smart. She knows the system. And she said, point blank, you are afraid to push me too hard because I'm going to quit and you won't be able to tell your funders that you had success with me. She just point blank called me out on it. And we, I, we really had to have a, we had to have a really a kind of a 180 in the organization of just like, we can't do this anymore. And I understand that I can rig the system to where a hundred percent of them can succeed and graduate, but it's just, I'm not going to do anything for them as people. And so that we, we kind of had to make that change. And, and then, then the results started coming after that.
in your introduction, you mentioned that you had a non-traditional path to where you are today. So perhaps just start at the beginning and walk us down that path with you. I, I, I grew up in South Omaha, um, and I have two older sisters, and we had a pretty normal life. I mean, I think we were even accused on a couple of occasions of being rich, you know, in the, in the neighborhood. And I think it, it was an accusation in, in that neighborhood. But no, we weren't by any means. We were just, you know, my, my dad had a good job. And then, you know, when my, when my parents divorced, everything kind of blew up and, you know, and so, um, you know, with, with my dad leaving, and it, it was a very, it was a very violent divorce. Um, but it was violent at the hands of my mother towards my father. So there was a lot of, um, there was just a lot of violence of <laughs> whatever she could do to hurt him physically, she would. And, and we witnessed this and, and we, you know, unfortunately we had to witness a, a lot of that mental instability and, uh, you know, we, you know, suicide attempts we had to witness and, you know, of, of manipulation of, of him to try to get him to come back and threats to kill us. And, and then I think after he left and I, I couldn't really go with him because I, because I, for fear of what my mom would do to me or to her. And um, so I, I think at, at a certain point he, he gave up emotionally on, on me and on us. My sisters had been long gone by then. So it was just me with, with a single mom who was pretty mentally unstable. Um, and so then dad was done. And we kind of had to deal with, I had to deal with that, had to deal, you know, and it made me a very scared person, it was, you know, and, you know, it, it was hard for my mom to, I look very much like my father and I did then at age 11. And so she really couldn't bear to look at me. And so would, would kind of let me know of just, you know, Hey, I want you out. Of, I want you out of my face right now. You look like your father, you're, you know, you're stupid, you're ugly. And, um, just get out of the room type stuff. And that, you know, that, uh, that sticks with you. <laughs> and so, and so, and then, you know, with, with dad being gone, single parent, um, you know, she worked in fast food for 25 years. We didn't have a lot of money. Um, a lot of food shortages, you know, had, had to go to bed without food. Sometimes we were on welfare and that, you know, I, that goes to school. And I, I got my first F when I was in fifth grade, um, I ended up getting kicked out of my high school and, and, and then I, you know, I dropped out of high school and didn't get my GED until, until the age of 27 when I went back and, and majored in, in history and religion, which are very lucrative degrees. I can tell you that, <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's, that's kind of the path I took, um, I guess, but in between then I, discovered music and I discovered books and, and that's really what kind of kept me on the path that I needed to be on that allowed me to, to be where I am, I guess. You found value in books and music. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit more about that, that experience and, and, and what it was about books and music that was so formative for you. You know, music was for me, I mean, it, it, I, I've always been into that my whole life. I mean, my first concert was Kiss in 1977 because my mom's like, you listen to God of Thunder in your room all the time. We just had to take you because you wanted to do it. And so that's, it's just been a huge part of my life. Um, 
And then that just kind of, it stayed in me. And then, you know, when it came time, you know, the, you know, obviously my parents did good things for me and from time to time. And so buying me a, a bass guitar and a drum set at age 15 was one of the hugest things that they had done for me. And I'm, I, you know, so I thank them for that. And, and I kind of just taught myself how to play and, you know, kind of always just thought, you know, I'll, I'll be in a band someday. And then, you know, I, I just, there, there, there are points I remember of just like, I remember hearing Fugazi for the first time and it just like how that like shook me, how that like, just like, wait, what, what, what the hell is going on here? And, you know, it's always been a huge Husker Du, Bob Mould fan. And that had a profound effect on me as well. And, you know, then you start to find these, you know, Joy Division and Squirrel Bait and Sonic Youth and all these things start flooding in. And it's just like this, it was almost like a, a, that was my education right there. But I think the bigger thing was that I did, I did end up getting into a band which was the best thing that I could have done. I mean, getting into rock and roll saved me and you probably don't hear that too much from people. But uh, so that led to me being in and out of different bands for 20 years. Um, and then being able to be around creative people. And so I was lucky in those formative years that I was around this huge family, which was the musical scene here. And it was not by any means a competitive scene at the time. And this is, you know, these were just people who were just hanging out with each other and people I still see and love to this day. And then, you know, my friends were awesome, talented, creative people. I'm, I've, you know, around this time I was hanging around with Simon Joyner. I just heard your show with him, which was great. Um, my friend Bill Hoover, who's still making art and just ever, you know, these people were, were my influence. And so that, that, that was huge for me. And the same thing kind of happened with books, you know, where I just find that I didn't, you know, obviously, you know, knowing my background, there wasn't a ton of books and I wasn't read to, you know, or anything like that. There was no value placed on it. Um, but I ended up, it was right around the time I dropped out of high school. I, I knew intellectually that that was not the right thing to do. Although there was, I felt like there weren't people saying like, hey, this isn't the right thing to do. It, it just kind of happened. It was a tree falling in the woods. But I, I was in a friend's basement and I saw all these books and I was like, I, I, I need to really see what this whole literature thing's about, see what this whole being literate thing's about. And then it, it started an obsession that started when I was 18 and, and hasn't subsided at all. It, it's, it is how I cope with day-to-day -day life. Like if I can, I need to, to read, it, it's my meditative time and it's, it's been great. I mean, it's... I mean, it helped in, in the intellectual side, but it just helps me spiritually, I guess.
Do you have a library of books that you promote to your employees? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we um, we have a book club because there's no way they're getting in or out of there without reading. But the book club is great because we get to read these books and we get to have these conversations every week. And I'm part of the book club as well. Everybody on the staff is. But it's also a time management tool. You know, if you have to read 50 pages this week and we pay you to read, we're not going to let you do it the day of, you know, you, you have to break it down, you know. And so the time management part of it becomes becomes pretty great, too. How much of your involvement with the bike union and the five ventures is a reflection of a motivation or a need in, in yourself to, in some ways, perhaps pay it forward, but also to perhaps heal some of the non-traditional path traumas that you've talked about? Yeah, I mean, it's probably way more self-serving than I realize. You know, you can, I get the compassion label thrown on me a lot, which is which is probably not entirely accurate. I'm again probably more misanthrope, so probably the opposite. But there is a part of me that what I went through, and I, I also get accused of of a white savior complex, which is which is you know I I don't think probably far off base in the sense that, you know, if people see it from the outside and they don't know the, the invisible scars that I have, or, you know, they don't know what my background is, they don't know that I, I will always feel as one of the marginalized people, no matter what happens in my life, no matter what my paycheck says, I will feel like one of those people. I will feel like one of them. And so I'm a huge admirer of Father Boyle from Homeboy Industries. It's a, you know, gang intervention and a very similar thing that I do and he does, you know, he has homeboy bakery and homeboy screen printing and all these enterprises where former gang members work. He's a Jesuit priest. And, and, um, you know, his whole thing is, is just being in kinship with people on the margins. And I think that's another way that we do human services wrong. Sometimes is the way we approach it in, in more of a condescending fashion than I see myself in you, I see us in kinship and I'm not here to save you. I mean, I have to, you know, I have to remind other people and myself that, that the bike union is not my fair lady and I'm not Henry Higgins. Like it's, you know, I had a great conversation with three of my staff the other day and we were just talking about our, our childhood and we have a lot in common. These are, these are truly my peers and, and I have more in common with them than I do the people, you know, that I, I probably do with the people who are considered my peers. And so I think it's important that, that we're on the margins, that we see ourselves, And this is, this is again, Father Boyle, that you see yourself in kinship with people on the margins. And that's why you're there and you're not there in sort of judgment or pity. And I think that's, I'm, I'm called and, and I guess I'm called calling sounds grand. And that's, that's, you know, I'm just a guy doing his job, but, um, that's where I want to be. I'm drawn to the margins. I'm drawn to the marginalized. And I think it's, I think if we could do that better as a society, I think we, the the better off we would be. I think we want to find the flaws in people. And we want to call them out. I mean, it, it really is a call out culture now in the sense of how do you deal with somebody who's racist and how do you deal with somebody who's homophobic or, or a domestic abuser? And I, I struggle with those things too. I mean, I, I want to rage against those things as well, but how do we really deal with that, you know, as a society? You know, perhaps part of the answer is the phrase you mentioned, kinship, 
with mm-hmm. people on the margins. And you spoke about, you used the word family. You talked about being in family with other musicians. Mm-hmm. And that makes me wonder if that experience and some of your other experiences inform how you approach the business and practice of the bike union. And so I wonder if that's accurate and in what other ways your experiences are informing how you go about operating the bike union. Yeah, I thought my experience with what I went through as a kid would be the reason why I started it. And then the rest of my professional and for-profit experience would be, would just take over from there. But it just, it just didn't work that way at all. Like I use it every day, like every single day I'm trying to put myself in their shoes. And because it is a struggle, because I'm, because of where I'm from and because of how I was brought up, I, you know, I was raised with a chip on my shoulder. I, I grew up in South Omaha and I grew up fighting people every day, you know, like on the way from school, you know, you just fight people. That's just what you do, you know? And, uh, I am programmed to fight. I'm programmed that way. And I don't like that part about myself, but I have to, I have to know going into it that my first instinct of how to deal with somebody coming at me is almost going to be wrong. And then I have to look at it kind of intellectually and say, this is why they're doing this. Um, there's, an, there's another quote I just saw, which was fantastic, which was, um, you know, you, you stand by the belligerent and, and, and the violent and you stand by them until you realize that that's what it is, like what language it is. And it's just the vocabulary of the hurt. And that's why people are doing it. And I think a good case of that, and this was just recently for me, is, you know, we have to deal with domestic violence against some of our employees. And one of our female employees was beat up pretty bad by her boyfriend recently. And, you know, my first instinct was, well, we got to go stomp this guy. You know, this is what we have to do. We have to beat this guy up, right? Like, and, you know, my program director is probably like, "Mm," you know, (laughs) I'm sure that's a good, right instinct. And you know, he would come in the shop and, you know, maybe we'd side, I'd, I'd side eye him or stink eye him or, you know, maybe just give him a little wave. And I don't like, I didn't like how that made me feel as a human being. I don't like how, you know, this kid, he's 20 something like, you know, and, um, so I, I started thinking like this guy's probably, this is, this is the language of the hurt, right? This is, he's been a victim his whole life. Who's modeled anything for him. And so gradually I could see myself going from like, this guy needs to be beaten up, you know, and kind of given a taste of his own medicine to like, Hey, well, you know, tell me about his mom. Well, you know, his mom's, she was, she's a pretty bad person. Oh, tell me about his dad. Oh, his dad's not in the picture. And he was in the foster care system. And so it's like, Hey, do you want to give him my number and see if he wants to just chat, see what we can do. And, uh, so she's like, Oh, I'll, I'll see if he wants to. And she leaves the shop. And 15 minutes later, I get a text from this guy, you know, who just like, who jumped on it, you know, right away. And so I'm just like, Hey, let's, let's get together. Let's talk. Let's see what we can do as far as like programs and, and jobs. And, you know, it, it, his response of thank you. I appreciate this very much. Like it, it, it got me, it got me in the feelers and, uh, and, you know, of course made me ashamed of my first instinct of not seeing, you know, I know I think this way every day, but like kind of missing the point of why he's truly doing this. And I think as a society, we're okay to condemn these people. You know, all, all the people I work with in the prisons, I don't 
condone anything that they've done. And, you know, I know some of the things that they've done, but these are human beings that I'm talking to. These are human beings that I'm dealing with. And so they need, they need to be met as human beings and we need to be out there with them. If you could just change anything, what would you change? But I sometimes worry that in asking that, what we do is pretend that it isn't going to take a lot of time, a lot of pain, a lot of resources, a lot of political and social will. So I don't want, I want to recognize that this is not easy and there has to be some sacrifice and discomfort to be worked through. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, if you could change something for the benefit of the people you're working with, mm-hmm. what would you change? I wish I could give them all a childhood, you know? I mean, I think that's, I wish they could get, I wish they could get what my sons have. I think that's the litmus test for me is if my sons have it and they enjoy it, then the the kids I work with should should have had it or should have it. And that's why there's components to the programming that seem really tangential, you know, just like we backpack and we camp and, you know, we go biking together and, you know, I have lunch with them frequently. And, you know, I think it's a, I wish I could give them a non-traumatic childhood because everything that I went through pales in comparison to the things I've heard from them and the things I've heard from the people in prison that I work with. It's amazing that they can bear what they've gone through, that they can bear their burden and go through life and that they're there and showing up every day is, and we view them as a society as, as kind of cast offs and disposable and they're really invisible to people. But when they show up every day and, and bear their burden, it's just, it's amazing to me. Like, are you like, are you kidding me? This is what you're carrying around and you're still showing up and you have to listen to me say, get off your phone or get here on time. And you know, there's, there's bigger things going on than that. And we have to keep that in mind, I guess. But I think we have to keep that in mind at the bike union, but we as a, as a society need to keep that in mind of like, what people carry around with them every day and not be such a call out culture and, and realize why people hurt other people and what's going on inside, I guess. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, Download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with Maya Summer, the executive director of the Bike Union. Maya, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you very much, Stuart. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.